everybody. Fourth and fifth graders, you're dismissed to your class. Fourth and fifth graders, you can make your way to your class. Gentlemen, I want to share with you today how to avoid couples counseling. And let me preface that by saying that I'm actually a big fan of it. And Kelly and I, several times in our marriage, have gone to, to see a counselor. So if you're walking out of here and you've got issues that need to be attended to, let me encourage you in regards to, for me, I think it was the best money I've spent and invested in my marriage. And, and we know in other areas of our lives we do that, right? Like um, if something's wrong with our body and something's going wrong, uh, we go see an expert that we call an, a doctor. And if something's wrong with our car and we can't fix it, we take it to an expert that we call a mechanic. And if the plumbing is going crazy in the house, we call a plumber to come in and help us out. Which, by the way, as a side note, let me share with you a Sam Fix-It story from this week because I share those here often if you're first time here. I have no fix-it skills whatsoever. Uh, my son uh, this week uh, finished taking a shower, and the water continued to, to run. Like, not a lot, but just, you know, enough for, like, you know, we got to take that care of. So uh, I went to the expert uh, YouTube and tried to figure out how to fix it. And it looked easy. So I got my screwdriver and pipe wrench, and I think I can handle this. Uh, I'm going to save myself $100 on a plumber, and it's like a $2 part at Lowe's, so we'll be fine. So I've got the uh, faucet dismantled and taken off, and there's a, there's a nut that you've got to kind of unscrew. So I hook up the, the pipe wrench to it, and I'm giving it a good, good turn. And it's all oh, good. It's turning. It's coming, it's coming off. And actually, it wasn't coming off. I was wrenching the entire plumbing and pipe behind the wall, and all of a sudden I hear a and water's gushing from the second floor through the first floor and down into the basement. YouTube videos. So three and a half hours later and $400, I now have a nice new faucet. works great, but that is my fix-it skill. So the point of that is if you need help, you should get help. And there really are people who are relational experts who understand the dynamics of things like marriage and relationships. And so if you need that, I recommend it. And it's amazing to me, especially men, how many get prideful in that moment. Well, I don't, I, I don't need any help at all. So if I might, let me help you this morning improve the condition of your marriage to a point where it's possible to both avoid or maybe not need couples counseling. If this is your first time with us at Livingstone's Church, I'm very glad that you're here. We are in the second week of a six-week series entitled Modern Family. We've got a lot to talk about. We began last week discussing the reality that every single person in the family is a sinner. Everyone. No one's excluded. And what that means is every family is going to have issues, they're going to have complexities, they're going to have difficulties, they're going to have their own dysfunctions, everybody. So if you're walking around feeling like a complete failure because of the condition of your family, I just want you to know at the top, just right off, that listen, every family has issues. And even if you're looking at it, no, they all look perfect. No, no, I promise, they've got their issues. But in the midst of that, we think Jesus can bring some hope. And so last week we shared four points that in the midst of our dysfunctional issues, Jesus can bring us hope. One we said was he invites us into a path of grace and forgiveness. And this is important when it comes to families because families can operate really well without grace and forgiveness. First, just grace and forgiveness for yourself. So all that failure, that feeling of being a failure as a parent or whatever, as a spouse, or failure or in any other regard, that Jesus says, I'm going to take away that guilt, I'm going to take away that shame, and I just want to invite you into a path of grace and forgiveness. And secondly, grace and forgiveness towards other people in our family. Because the issue is not, will they sin against you? It is, when they sin against you, you've got two options, bitterness or the path of forgiveness. And Jesus invites us to that path of forgiveness because it makes family reunions a whole lot easier. Number three, or number two, then Jesus decenters the biological family. 
Number one, brings us grace and forgiveness. Number two, he decenters the biological family. I know that feels awkward to, to us and sounds weird because we tend to hold the family up as the most important thing. In fact, it could almost function like an idol in our life where everything revolves around it. And anytime though you hear Jesus teach about family or how he demonstrates how he treats his own family, he always decenters it. He says things like, unless you hate your mother and father and your wife and your children and even your own life and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. You see what he does there? Yeah. Family, your biological family will not be everything to you. I will be everything to you and everything will flow out of that which is a side note, we're much better fathers and husbands and wives and sons and daughters when we're following Jesus first and family second. And even Jesus' own life, you see, uh, there's a story where he's teaching the crowds. We've got lots of people gathering in around him. And, and, and someone calls out to the crowd, hey, Jesus, your mom's here. Your brothers are here. And Jesus stops and he says, who's my mother? And who are my brothers? And who are my sisters? And he points to the crosses. It is those who do the will of my father. They're my mother and sister. But I mean, he just always decenters biological family. And the reason why this is such good news is for many people, you've grown up in a biological family that have told you that your identity is something that is not true. Like may, maybe it was your, your stepdad told you that you were never good enough and the only thing you're ever going to amount to is such and such. Or maybe your mother and her own issues said, well, you'll be lucky. If, I mean, if you can get a guy who at least treats you like this, that'll be the best that you can do. I mean, whatever it is, Jesus comes along and says, you don't have to listen to any of those tapes. I'm freeing you from that. The only thing you need to listen to by way of your identity will come from me. The dissenters biological family. Number three, Jesus inspires us with an ideal. Like, he shoots for, this is the ideal of what can happen in family life and inspires us to go after it, which we're going to talk about here in just a little bit. And then finally, number four, we talked about that he gives us his spirit to live inside of us to give us those nudgings and those proddings when we need it, to remind us of the things that Jesus has taught, to, to, to get in touch with Jesus' teachings and his spirit so that when you're a complete jerk to your spouse, it will be the Holy Spirit who comes along and nudges us and says, yeah, you, you need to go apologize. You were, you were being a, a jerk to your spouse. And then we, we go make things right. Or, or maybe you just got finished with that tirade at your kids and they really kind of deserved it. But it will be the spirit that will nudge you and say, yeah, but the spirit and the manner and the tone in which you did it is crushing their spirits in a way that they might not overcome in life. And, and you need to go make that right. That's what, what the spirit of God does for us, even in the midst of all the complexities and issues of our modern families. And then over the next couple of weeks, like next week, we're going to talk about kid CEO and what it looks like in a family when the kid is driving the family. And then the week after that, we're going to talk about living the 50%, overcoming divorce. A lot of people here have walked through divorce and a very traumatic thing. How do, how do you overcome that? The week after that, we're going to talk about uh, the, the road less traveled but increasingly more populated. It's on the single life. What we know statistically is a lot of people are just opting out of marriage altogether and choosing to be single. And we're going to have a guest speaker actually come and speak to us. I think it's going to be a great, and he'll speak with much more authority than I will on this topic. And then finally, the last week, we'll wrap it up with repairing a cracked foundation. But this morning, I want to talk to you, to my brothers in Christ, about the real housewives of St. Joseph County. Now, ladies, I'm going to do a lot of talking on your behalf based on things that my wife has said to me or other women have shared with me and based on my own reading and my own research. But I'll be talking in large stereotypes and large generalizations about men and women and marriage. And you know, anytime you do that, you can get yourself in trouble, right? So I'm just confessing it up front. The things I'm saying at times are large stereotypes, large generalizations. And so, ladies, if I get it wrong, then you are invited and more than welcome to correct me afterwards and offer your voice and opinion in the things in which I'm talking about. I do not consider myself to be an expert when it comes to the ladies. 
Who am I kidding? Of course I'm an expert when it comes to the... No, I'm just kidding. All right. Here we go. Ready? Here is the sad statistical truth. Based on the facts and statistics, just by way of statistics, here's what I know, that there are a few of you men sitting here this morning in this service that one year from now you will no longer be married. Like you're married now, but in 365 days you will no longer be married. Your marriage will be over. And if you want to know who my guess is to who that is, you could see me in the lobby afterwards, and I'll tell you my guess is. Now, here's what we also know based on the research and the science in it. If you haven't been married for very long, and already your marriage is kind of a train wreck, it won't come as a surprise to you when you get divorced. Like, if you've not been married, like, just you've been married for a relatively short period of time, and in that time, you just know things are not going well, this might have been a mistake, this feels like a train wreck. When the marriage does come to an end, you probably won't be all that shocked and surprised. But what we know based on the research is that couples who've been married together for a long period of time, like 10 years or more, that when the marriage does come to an end, that for the man, he will say he never saw it coming. It will come to him as a complete shock. He will feel blindsided over and over again. Men in long-term marriages, when their marriages come to an end, when they look back, what they'll say is, whether it's true or not, this is what they'll think and how they'll feel, is that there were no warning signs, that they were completely taken off guard. One day everything was just fine. The next day, boom, she left me and gave me, a, you know, served me with divorce papers. Two-thirds today of divorces are initiated by women. Two-thirds. Let that number sink in. Two out of every three marriages that end in divorce do so at the initiation of the women. And there might be lots of reasons for that. I mean, one today, women don't need you financially as much as they might have in a bygone era. Or they might not need you for protection as much as they might have in a bygone era. And even just in terms of opportunity with social media and, and working now, I mean, just the things have changed in a way that didn't exist even decades ago. But many men will be left stunned and shocked because they suffer from what some experts call the everything is okay syndrome. This is, they were absolutely clueless to the reality that their wives were not okay. They were just walking around thinking, everything's okay. No, everything's fine. No, I got a good marriage. Everything's good. And they didn't realize that their wives were not okay or, or that their marriages were really in trouble or that they were really living in the midst of a dead marriage. And men have a tendency not to read well relational cues and get caught up in the routine of life in such a way that they stop taking a pulse or an inventory in regards to how their marriage is going. And now while I'm discussing this, let me bring the ladies back in for just a moment. I, before I let you off the hook, and again, I'm speaking in large generalities and stereotypes, but a lot of wives contribute to this everything's okay syndrome by communicating a false okay. And do you know what I mean by that? By communicating the false okay? Most people don't like conflict. In fact, everybody doesn't like The only person who likes conflict is the demented person. Most people don't like conflict, but my experience is a lot of women really don't like conflict. Like, will steer clear of it at all costs. And so what happens is, because they hate conflict, uh, they go to great lengths to avoid it, so you end up communicating to your husband uh, everything is okay, and it really isn't. So he'll ask, you all right? Yeah, I'm fine. Sure, I mean, some, something the matter? <sighs> no, I'm okay. And the truth is, you aren't okay at all. But guys tend to take at face value, even though your demeanor and your sigh and your disp disposition says otherwise, you're expressed, I'm okay. And then he'll move forward, probably sitting in his lazy boy chair, flipping channels and eating blocks of cheese, which is what I do. <laughs> he'll just assume that you really are okay. 
And then one day when you as a wife have had all you can handle, when you've had enough of cramming down your frustration and your resentment and your exhaustion and that feeling of I'm the only one that's working in this marriage, and then just gone. I I had a call two years ago, about two years ago, from a woman here at our church who called me up one day in my office just to let me know she loved me, she appreciated me, but she wasn't coming back to church here anymore. And I said, well, I mean, what? I mean, what's, what's going on? So she started to share, and I, I knew that they had issues, so to speak, in, the, in their marriage, but what she shared with me was that uh, she had, was leaving. Like, she had already arranged housing in an entirely new city, which on the phone that day, she wouldn't even disclose to me where she was going. And she already had a new job totally lined up, and she even had a budding relationship with an ex-boyfriend on Facebook, and so that's where she was headed uh, that day. But her husband had no idea. And she had left him a note just simply to say she was leaving him and starting life completely over without him. And when he got home from work that afternoon, he would discover it. And so she wanted me also to be able to check in on him, make sure, you know, you know kind of look, look, tend to his pastoral needs and those sorts of things. And it was just this amazing that she was already, I mean, she had just checked out, didn't say a word to her husband, just left a note and had an entirely new life planned somewhere else. So right now, ladies, if in your mind you're thinking, how did she pull that off? That sounds kind of a, attractive to me. Or, or if you're thinking, can I get her number? I've got a few questions to ask her. This morning might be the morning after church to get in the car and simply say to your husband, hey, w- we need to talk because I'm not okay. And here's what I'd recommend. Say it like this. Just say, listen, I love you, and I'm committed to you, and we're going to work this out, and we're going to be okay. But at this moment, I'm not okay. And I know when we talk about these issues, I mean, people get real sensitive. I totally get that, like, especially sitting next to your spouse thinking, oh, my goodness. I mean, we're going to be okay. We're going to get through this message, and, and God will give us plenty of grace in the midst of it. But I'm just, if you are communicating a false okay, go ahead and start communicating the truth in regards to where you're really at. Two-thirds of divorces are initiated by women. And, and then the man asks, I mean, you're leaving me? To which she says, Yes. And that is because you are doing everything that looks like leaving me except the actual leaving part. Because men, for whatever reason, don't seem to leave. Like, they'll just keep hanging on in the midst of all and, and they, it. But functionally, emotionally, they've already checked out. And so she's the one that typically pulls the trigger because functionally the marriage ended years ago. Does that kind of make sense where we're at? So let's talk now theology. Well, how does this fit into a modern family where God wants us to go? How do we kind of move closer towards the ideal. And I'd like to take us all the way back to the creation story, if I could, to Genesis chapter 1, because I think it really does, the issue really does start here. It's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It says this, so God created man in his own image. And I, and this is such a profound thought, I can't even tell you all the ways that we have been created in God's own image, or even what the fully, the full impact of that statement, what that means to be created in his own image. But he clarifies and finishes this verse by saying, in the image of God, he created them both male and female. He created them. That both are an extension of the image of God, male and female. And it's at this verse that we see what's at this moment, uh, God is giving birth to sexuality. He is creating us as sexual creatures, both male and female. And that's why, I mean, we know this is God's idea, right? Like God is in heaven looking down on, oh my, what are they thinking? What are they doing? I mean, no, I mean, sexuality was God's idea from the beginning. And I don't mean just like the act of sex. I mean, by way of gender and who we are and our makeup and our dispositions and our proclivities. Again, I'm speaking large stereotypes and generalizations, but it is a reflection of God's image. And so, being created as a man, there are things about my proclivities and my nature that's inherently a reflection of the image of God. 
of his divine attributes and his divine qualities. And if you were created as a woman, I'm, I'm telling you, you have qualities and attributes that are a divine reflection of God himself. Until we don't talk about that, we usually camp out on the masculine side of God. But I'm telling you, you should go home and just, if you just did a Bible study, like Google the feminine characteristics of God, what you'll see is passage after passage where God is referred to as mother or wife or lover or, also, I mean, or feminine attributes because they too are a, a divine reflection of God himself. Now, now, again, stereotyping here, and I feel like I'm supposed to say, listen, I'm for the equality of the sexes. I mean, to equal job pay. I mean, I mean I'm for equality. And I believe even my own marriage, we kind of have an egalitarian relationship where I can't think of a time in our 20 years of marriage I've ever had to flex my masculine arms to say, you know, I'm the head of this house and blah, 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 and I'm going to do it my way. I mean, that's just never happened. I think you could function just great in marriage without that sort of uh, concept. But having said that, we're very different just by virtue of our sex. The inherent in who God has created me to be in the divine attributes of masculinity, I, I'm inclined to wanting to take more risks or boldness or adventure. And I, I want to pursue. And I, I want a beauty to rescue. I want to play a part in a heroic adventure. And I think if you just unroll guys deep down, that's what they're looking for, that kind of bold adventure, that heroic feat, that beauty to rescue, that pursuit of something. And that's why all the best men movies that we go watch, that's the story. I mean, the best movie of all times, which is, of course, Braveheart. Oh, but that's what it's all about. It tells our stories. And you see, little girls, when they grow up and they're role-playing or playing games, I mean, what's happening? They're being rescued by somebody. I mean, I don't have to stereotypically, right? But most little boys don't grow up playing those games of being rescued. By, I mean, that's just not how it happens. In fact, for, for women oftentimes, like when you go see chick flicks or romance novels or those sorts of things, what's it about? Largely the plot line is about a girl who wants to be a romance and pursued and rescued. If you will, I don't mean like as a victim, like, oh, I'm a victim or I'm so weak I can't handle my life. I don't, I don't mean like that at all. I just think a woman longs to have a beauty that's all her own to unveil both externally and internally and that will cause a man to pursue it and to go after it and to fight for it and to protect it and to romance it. Again, don't hear me say when I say feminine, I do not mean weakness. Not at all. In fact, I think women are born with, with a warrior princess all of their own. That an, an accurate feminine spirit, that warrior princess spirit understands that one of the essential qualities of being feminine is vulnerability. And it takes courage to be vulnerable. But it is a divine attribute of God. I don't know if you were here during Christmas. We did a series called Unwrapped, and it was all about the vulnerability of God and how that takes courage to be in that. But what we find is, for a woman, that warrior spirit and vulnerability is expressed most profoundly and usually for the sake of relationship. That there's something very fierce in the heart of a woman. I mean, just by way of illustration, go up to a woman and insult her best friend and see what happens. Or insult her husband and see what you're going to get. Or if you really want to risk your life, insult one of her kids and see what happens next. There is a fierceness but it was given to women for a reason and for a purpose. Women do battle, but mostly for relationship. Which, as a side note here, when women have been wounded enough in life or injured in life or abused in life, she will lose her feminine quality of vulnerability just to protect herself 
like she'll begin to shut down that vulnerable place just in her attempt to protect it. This is one of the consequences of Genesis 3 and the fall of mankind, that you'll see the woman start to exchange vulnerability for control in her relationships. She'll refuse to be vulnerable. If she cannot secure her relationship, then she'll kill her heart's longing for intimacy so that she'll be safe and in control. And I think Jesus can heal all of that. So there seems to be something innate and inherent in how God has created us when he created us male and female. And this has serious implications for marriage. So here, here's where I want to go with this. And husbands, listen to me. It's, you must pursue and romance your wife still. You must pursue and romance your wife still. Your wife wants to be pursued. She wants to know that her beauty, both inside and out, has been noticed by you and it has captured your attention. And it is worth your time and your energy and your focus and your resources and your own life to go after it. Ladies, if this is true, give me an amen. amen. Give me a, if your husbands need to hear this, give me a whoop, whoop. See, if this is true, teach you, give me a Sam is the man. No, I'm just kidding. All right, no, I'm just kidding. We're moving. I'm just kidding. If I had to guess what your wife's complaint is, it is that you don't pursue her anymore that you don't romance her anymore, that you've kind of slipped into a routine that has left her feeling unwanted and unpursued. And listen, I'm telling you, as your pastor, no one gets this and appreciates what it's like to just fall into the routine of life where you can't imagine the last time you romanced your wife or pursued your wife. And it's not intentional. No guy wakes up and says, I'm not pursuing her anymore. You just get caught up in just what's going on in life and the responsibilities and work and kids and this and that and the other. Next, you know, you can't remember the last time that you actively pursued or intended to go after and romance your wife. In fact, when you think about it now, it feels awkward. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but listen, man, you know what I'm talking about. Like, you think to yourself, I mean, if I try to do that now, I'm going to look so goofy and silly, and it's going to feel awkward. And the answer is, yes, that's probably the case. But she'll appreciate it. Like, yeah, you're going to have to get over your pride and step out and risk that feeling of awkwardness and silliness because it's been so long since you've done it, but she will appreciate it. And in fact, I want to take you to Genesis chapter 29 is where I want to go. It's a story I want to show you about a man who falls in love, and he works, and he pursues, and he romances, and he goes, he recognizes beauty, and he's willing to work hard for it. So I just want Genesis chapter 29. It's a story about Jacob, and, and uh, Jacob, I don't know if you know the story. He's kind of a weasley guy. He's kind of his name means heel grabber and deceiver, and most of his life he spent deceiving people until one day he kind of goes off to live with his uncle Laban, but Laban has two daughters. So, so he goes with lives with his uncle Laban who has two daughters. These two daughters for Jacob are who? His what? His cousins, right? So that's the thing back then. I mean, I know not so much now, but so it's his cousins, and he's got two daughters. The oldest is Leah, and the, the youngest is Rachel, and when Jacob sees Rachel, whoo, his heart starts pitter-pattering. And he falls in love. He is captivated by her beauty, and he pursues it. This is the story. Verse 14, Genesis 29. Then Laban said to him, You are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Which is a great conversation, right? I mean, Jacob's just living with his uncle, doing the chores, thinking he's helping out because he lives under, under his protection and his roof. And Laban says, Hey, I'm not going to make you work for nothing. Tell me what you want. What, what wages would you like? Now, side note here, verse 16. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, which I don't know what that means. Is she blind? Is she, I mean, I don't know what that means. But, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. 
So when Jacob sees Rachel, it is a whoo. I mean, he sees her. Jacob, it says in verse 18, was in love with Rachel, and he said to his uncle Laban, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Seven years of labor to marry his younger daughter, Rachel. Could you imagine how Rachel felt those seven years, knowing that Jacob's working all this time? He goes out in the field, does all whatever he needs to do to win her hand, to earn her hand, to pursue her, to go after her. Laban says in verse 19, Laban said, it's better they give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel. But listen to this. But they seemed like only a few days to him because of the great love he had for her. Seven years went by like that because he loves her. He was so full of love and passion for Rachel that those seven years went by like just a few days. So here's what happens next. So Jacob said to Laban, right? He goes in to talk to the dad, to Laban. He says, give me my wife. My time is completed. I want to lie with her. (laughs) Which I think there's more tactful ways to go about this. Like before I married Kelly, I talked to my father-in-law and asked for his permission, but I didn't do it like, you know, give me my wife, I want to have sex with her, which is kind of what, what, you know, that's kind of what Jacob is saying here. So this is what happens next. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob laid with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her main servant. And when morning came... There was Leah. Now, how drunk do you have to be at that feast not to know that you're actually with the older sister, Leah, right? I mean, what veil could they possibly have been wearing back then that you don't really know who it is that you're sleeping with? And so if I had a camera to capture the Im- image here, this is one of those scenes where I'd love to get Jacob's reaction when he wakes up in the morning right now. Uh, more, uh, whoa, look at Leah. <laughs> what in the world? So that Jacob goes to his uncle, as you imagine he might, and he says, what is this you've done to me? I, I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? To which Laban replied, well, you know, around here, it's not really our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, and then we'll give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. Now, this is where lawyers get called at this moment, Right? But look what it says, verse 20, and Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife, which is a little too sister-wifey, isn't it? That's, but anyhow, that's what he, and Laban gave his sister girl, his, his servant girl, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, as her maidservants, which, by the way, these maidservants, they'll play a part in Jacob's growing family in the story to come. And Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. Now, honestly, just in terms of just integrity of sermons, I don't think the writer of Genesis put this story here to tell us to go pursue our wives and be romantic. I don't, I don't think that. It's really probably more about the deceiver, Jacob, getting deceived and, and how his family gets established. But I do think in the story, you see this principle that Jacob is captivated by Rachel's beauty, and he pursues her, and he romances her, and he's willing to work 14 years for her hand in marriage, and I can't help but wonder how that made Rachel feel, and how she, what she thought of herself because of what Jacob is doing. And I have to tell you, I mean, because the Genesis story also informs us that we also have a great enemy in Satan who's always lying. And Satan is always lying to your wife, always. And Satan is trying to convince your wife that she isn't beautiful. Like, do you know how much she struggles listening to that other voice? 
and being able to hang on to, no, I have beauty and, in, and I'm invaluable and I have something incredibly valuable to offer because Satan's always lying to her to tell her otherwise. And this is where you come in as the husband. Your role and your function and your responsibility is to counteract Satan's lie to let her know that she is beautiful and that she has something of incredible value to offer. And how you show her that is by your continual pursuit and romancing of that beauty. A hesitant man is the last thing in the world a woman needs. And what I know just from my pastoral responsibilities is, I mean, all of the addictions that come out in a woman's life, no matter what they are, food, shopping, bad relationships, alcohol, being, what the foundation usually goes back to the root of she does not feel beautiful, she does not feel loved, she does not feel wanted, she does not feel pursued. And so if you've ever watched any of the, that show, The Real Housewives, and you can pick any city, New York, I mean, it's all the same plot line. It is a group of women, and this is the irony, they're trying to fill this void that's in them that they're desperate for someone to acknowledge their beauty. And that they have something invaluable to offer. And there's something that pursues them. And and so they're trying to get that through cosmetic surgery or through fancy fashion and clothes. And you can even see it in in some of our alcoholics and struggling through that. And some are kind of fighting in those relationships where they feel like they're totally not pursued and not wanted. And it comes out in all sorts of drama. And men, let me tell you right now, there are a lot of real housewives that exist in St. Joseph County that are desperate to be pursued and be romanced. And when desperation hits a certain point, listen to me, the first dude that romances her or pursues her or shows that he's captivated by her beauty, it's going to be a world of hurt and trouble for you. This is how affairs take place. No two people standing at the altar getting married ever think to themselves, you know, I think we're going to give this a good three years and let's kind of slowly fade into the background until seven years from now we really can't stand the sight of each other and then someone else is going to enter the picture and laugh at my jokes and think I'm cute and think I'm funny and think I'm good looking and then we're going to have it. Nobody does that. Nobody. Two people, when they get married, they just say, oh, this is going to be, right? You know, they're stupid. That's what they are, but that's where they are, right? That's how it works. Nobody intends to move in that direction. And my guess is at one point, you were great at pursuing and romancing your wife. That's my guess. That's probably how you got her. That's how you got married, because you pursued her. You romanced her. You acknowledged her. You affirmed her. You went after her beauty, and then you got married. <laughs> and listen, I'm telling you, I am the chief, listen, I am the chief of sinners in this regard. I mean, I remember before Kelly and I got married when we were in college, and I went after Kelly. I mean, I would come home and pour concrete during the summers and save all of my money and just spend it all on her, taking her out to eat buying her things, and it wasn't like a, I got to, I mean, I just, that's what I wanted to do, buying her flowers all the time, taking her to restaurants, I mean, I'd write her notes that I'd be embarrassed if any of you would ever read now, and you're talking on the phone till three in the morning, that's all right, I just want to hear you breathe, I mean, just stupid stuff, right, I mean, <laughs> the, the kind of thing that other couples look at and just roll their eyes and think, I hate that couple, that's what we were, that's what we were like. We'd get back from a date, and I'd want to have flowers on the counter of her dorm room so all of her friends would pass by and know that she was getting flowers. I remember one time, we were in Arkansas. It was where, we did, uh, where I was in college, and they had beautiful bluffs in Arkansas. And, and one date, I was going to take her out to the bluffs. It was 45 minutes away, and I drove there before I date, 45 minutes to lay red roses along the path. Came back, got Kelly, and drove in 45 minutes. I came back uh, just so we go on our date. Right? That's kind of stuff. And then we got married, and this is what you got now. I mean, what happens? I mean, Right? Like, I don't think it, at, at the wedding, the guy goes, finally that's over. I was tired. <laughs> I was looking forward to being done with that for a long time. Right? No, that's not what happens. You, just, you get stuck in this routine, in this 
rut and this groove of responsibilities and family and everything else. And the next thing you know, life just happens in such a way that you become complacent in regards to her beauty. That romance and pursuit gets replaced by Sunday night football. And Monday night football. And then Tuesday's bowling league. And then you got those late meetings every at work every Wednesday night. And then on Thursday, you're probably, you know, you're working on the yard and you got to fix your car. I mean, you, not me. I can't fix anything. But, I mean, I mean, on Friday, the kids have got all their football games. And then on Saturday, you've got college football going on. Which, by the way, if Notre Dame is playing, that is a legitimate reason to stop the romancing and the pursuit. That's, that's it. I'm just saying. That's, that's legitimate. And it becomes a slow slide happening in your wife's heart and mind until she falls into a place of resentment. Perry Noble said one time that couples think that the momentum created by yesterday's romance will be enough to carry them into an amazing future. That the momentum of yesterday's romance will be able to carry them on into an amazing future. And really, yesterday's romance might have been great, but it was great yesterday. And so I would ask Men, what are you doing today to romance your wife, to let her know that she has an irreplaceable role in a heroic adventure? It was not a useful role, an irreplaceable role in a heroic adventure, and that she has invaluable beauty to offer. See, men just tend to stop working at their marriage. In fact, they think that their real work, like their literal job, is their contribution to the marriage. I don't know what your problem is. I mean, I'm bringing home a paycheck. I'm doing this all for you. That's why I'm working. So I mean, right? And the wife nowadays could say, I am too. I mean, it's, I mean, it's a, what I say, we have to, you can't stop working on the marriage itself. We can't just somehow think because you're bringing home a paycheck that that releases us then from going after her beauty. Because if that happens then, then we, both of us, are no longer living out our respective God-given inclinations of male and female. And when that hap- happens, resentment sets in. And resentment is the ultimate killer of intimacy. Resentment is the ultimate killer of, re- of intimacy. A man will not pursue a woman he resents. He won't. And a woman will not be vulnerable with a man she resents. So let's close with this. How do we get them to another level? Because we talked last week that Jesus gives us this, uh, this ideal to inspire us to. And I want to hang, hang on to that to us, for us this morning. I want us to shoot for that ideal. And as I do that, I know sometimes when you read through the Bible and you read the ideal, the consequence oftentimes is you feel a lot of guilt. Well, that's too late for my life. Like you, you hear Jesus say things like, you've heard it was said if you want to divorce your wife, give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to be an adulteress. Anyone who marries the woman who's divorced commits adultery. And we're sitting there thinking, well, if that's the ideal, I mean, that ship has sailed for me. I'm already on my third marriage. And so there's this huge gap that we feel in sometimes condemnation. Or Jesus will say something like this, like, you know, you've heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, don't even look at another woman lustfully or you've committed adultery with her in your heart. And we're thinking, is that even possible? No, I mean, and so there's this high ideal. And even throughout the rest of the Bible, we just don't have a whole lot about the family, which is a real challenge when you're doing six weeks on Modern Family. Like, Jesus himself doesn't say much about the family. The, 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 uh, the apostles and the writers of the New Testament just don't say a whole lot. And there's only three real places, and one's in Ephesians 5, so we're going to go there here. Ephesians 5, if you've got your Bible, we're going to go there to see this ideal. But here's what I want to say. Here's the ideal, and if you're like, yeah, but I'm living in the reality, that gap there, now you might be thinking, well, what is Jesus going to do to the people who didn't live out the ideal? Like, they're here, here's the ideal. And I want to tell you, Jesus isn't going to do anything to those people. 
Like what Jesus is going to do is he's going to extend grace and mercy, and he's going to, by the cross, stand in the gap between the ideal and the real. But we don't want to let it go because I think all of us still want to shoot for the ideal. And especially as parents, we want this for our kids, right? No good parent says to themselves, it would be great if my daughter could go through, see, I'd like her to go through two marriages and then end up living with a guy that doesn't really take care of her. Like, no one says that. What do we want for our kids? The ideal. And we want to hold that up. And so, listen, if you blew it in the first marriage, all right, that's okay. Hold the ideal up as the standard to be inspired to it in your second marriage. If you blew it with your firstborn son, okay, all right, call it what it is. That's what it is. Receive grace and forgiveness, but move after the ideal for your secondborn. I mean, that's what it means. And so here's what I think as we go through the ideals in Ephesians chapter 5. And as I read this, I, want, I do want to say this because when we read it today in the 21st century, there's things in it that we can go, it seems a little politically incorrect, or things that make us go, I don't know if I, even, I, don't know if I like that word used in this context. And we kind of have some of those emotions and feelings come up. But don't forget, here's what's happening. The, the followers of Jesus are taking Jesus' teachings and the spirit of his ministry, and they're trying to apply it to the audience of the first century. So don't forget who they're talking to originally. It is to the audience of the first century. And as we said last week, especially for you women, in the first century, you had no rights whatsoever. Like, I'm not advocating that. I'm not saying it's okay. But it's a completely patriarchal society where even when it comes to marriage, there's this idea of we get to freely choose that man who loves me and say yes. And No, no. It was an economic transaction that was made between your parents and their parents or the man himself. And you were just kind of a pawn. You were viewed literally as property of the man. That, I'm, I'm not advocating that. You didn't hear me say that, right? I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying that's the way it was. And so when the first century readers would read this, it's revolutionary. No one said these sorts of things. No one would come around and apply these principles from Jesus in the context of marriage, and it was radical and it was revolutionary. And I just want you to know that because in the 21st century, we tend to think, well, that feels old-fashioned. Like, that seems like, really? I mean, we're in the 21st century now, submission? I mean, really? And I want you to know, but in the first century, this was huge. So let's go there. Here's the first principle. It's in Ephesians chapter 5, the, in verse 21. Here's the principle that Paul gives to us. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the overarching principle from, from Jesus through Paul. Submit to one another through, for reverence through Christ. Now, in the first century, that is crazy. Like, the man would be like, well, what do you mean submit? I don't, I don't just submit. That's, she's my wife. She's the woman. I, she belongs to me. She's my property. I mean, there is Jesus, No, no. We're going to relate to one another in a way of humility and grace and mercy, submitting our own needs and our wants for the sake of, we're going to elevate the other above our own. That's, and now Paul's going to apply that very specific, that overall principle, he's going to apply it now to wives and then to husbands. So here's what he says then to the wives, applying this principle. So this would be for the wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. <laughs> Good luck. Okay, all right, moving on. Um, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to their husbands in everything. Now, I just want to say this because I really want to move on and talk to the guys. You know, Andy Stanley said one time that uh, he would have couples come into his office and the husband would be like, but the Bible says she has to submit to blah, blah, blah. And, go on, and he'd kind of stop them and just say, okay, now, now, who's he talking to here? Like, who's, the, who's he talking to? Yeah, he's not talking to you. He's talking to your wife. So you let her worry about that. He's going to talk to you here in a second, right? So like, so if you're one of those, but the wife's supposed to spend, like, you hang on to that. that the Bible's talking to, to your wife. She can struggle through all that. Here's where you come in in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I see, that's a totally radical idea. 
to love my wife, to care for my wife in the same manner as Christ loved the church and even paid his own life for the sake of the church, that's how much I'm supposed to love my wife? I mean, this woman who's like, I had this transaction, she's my property, she belongs to Yeah, you're going to love her like Jesus loves the church and paid with his own life for her. That's how much you're going to love her. See, this becomes radical stuff. And see, this becomes an entirely new standard. And in it, all of a sudden, what we recognize is for Jesus. See, I'm telling you, I, your wife's submission to you will be no issue in your marriage if she sees in your love for her a reflection of Christ's love for the church. I, and I really think that submission will not be an issue in your marriage if your wife sees your love for her as a reflection of Christ's love for the church. And so we just ask ourselves, does, does Jesus love the church? Absolutely. Does he pursue the church? Yes. Absolutely. Does he extend and affirm beauty to his bride, the church? Yes. Does he protect the church? Yes, with his own life. See, Jesus didn't just sit down at the end of the couch with a beer in hand and say, I'm just too tired to pursue the church. And I promise you, if you do this, it will take your marriage to an entirely new level. When she knows that you're putting her needs and her welfare and her interests and her well-being, even before your very own life, which is what Jesus did, when you pursue your wife and protect and love her as Christ loves the church, you will have her respect. And so let me close with this. Let me say a few words to the ladies, if I could. Let me bring the ladies back in. Ladies, a couple things real quick as we close. Number one, real life and the notebook are two totally different realities. Okay? You get what I'm saying here? Like, be cautious of the expectations you have for your husband drawn from our, like, here's a picture of Kelly and I just a couple years ago that we took together. I mean, right? I mean, sometimes we could be fed from media or culture an expectation that is so far out of reality that you just need to know, ladies, that the notebook and real life are two totally different things. Number two, I would say to this, be responsive to his pursuit and romance. And I don't mean just sex. I mean partly, but I mean not entirely. I mean just his pursuit of you and romance of you and your beauty. Because if you rebuff him enough times, I promise you, he will stop pursuing you. If you rebuff him enough times, I promise you, he will stop pursuing you. Just for his own protection, his own sake. I mean, he'll stop. And maybe that might be the conversation point uh, going home today, just to have that conversation. Do you feel this? And do you feel I've done this to you? And is, is there resentment in you because of that? And that could be just the beginning place of a great conversation to take place. So, so don't, don't rebuff his pursuit of you. Number three, I think every woman has the power to allure. And I want to say it like this, allure. And I don't mean that just sexually. I mean just, at least not completely. I would say use your power of allure to invite his pursuit. And I don't know if that makes sense to you. I'm not saying go be a supermodel all I'm saying is, if you're wearing the same 15-year-old T-shirt and sweatpants and curlers and mud mask to bed every night, you might not be using the power of allure to the best of your abilities. That's, that's what I'm saying. Are we all right? Am I right? That, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm trying to say. And now, finally, number four, for you ladies who aren't married yet, all, all the single ladies now. All the single ladies. All the single, okay, okay. I'm moving on. Never, never settle for a guy who doesn't pursue you, romance you, or recognize the beauty that you have to offer. 
I mean, really, especially if it's not happening before marriage, there's a good chance it's not going to pick up after marriage. If he is not pursuing you, romancing you, and letting you know and affirming the inherent value and beauty that you have. And don't let Satan or anyone else convince you that, well, you know, this is the best you're probably going to get. That's, that's all a complete lie. Now, if I could bring all of us back in as we close. If the romance has been dead for quite some time, uh, let, me, let me say, I don't expect anyone to walk out of here like flipping on a switch and all of a sudden they're done one. I, I'm not, that's not what we're talking about here, right? I'm just saying, let's just begin to plant seeds of romance that I think when they come to fruition will be a great blessing in your marriage. Just say, get over your pride of, of, of feeling a little silly, a little awkward, and begin to pursue once again your wife and romance her again and see what happens in terms of marriage. That my prayer for you is that your marriage will be great and that we'll defy this. Do you know that the divorce rate among Christians is really, it is the exact same as the divorce rate among non-Christians? It's the exact same. And I'd love to see us kind of just launch a movement of people who kind of start to change that and alter that a little bit. Where our, our marriages become reflections of the kingdom of God and his pursuit of us and our pursuit of one another and so my prayer is, as I began kind of depressingly, that there's a handful of you here married today that a year from now won't be married. My prayer is that you'll defy all of that. And a year from now, what you'll say is, this is the best place my marriage has ever been. And you'll have done so because we went for that ideal that Jesus has held up in regards to the innate nature of who God created us to be, both male and female. So let's pray together. Father, we come to you and we're grateful that you are God.